It is difficult to say what is impossible, for the dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do you know who that was, man? Yeah, do you know what? I'm trying to think who it was. Who was it? It was only Robert H. Goddard. No, but actually, I knew that it, I knew that it was Goddard that did the quote. But, oh, but, oh, you mean the accent? Yeah, but the accent sounded like someone really familiar, like something off Harry Potter or something. Yeah, I don't know. It just sort of came into my head. Um, and apologies if you listen to that, Robert. I, I meant no offence. We're just trying to entertain the masses. I, I can't believe that Robert Goddard's still oh. alive. Yeah, he died in 1945. He's long gone. He is long gone. Rest in peace, Robert, and uh, apologies for the the voice. He's described as the usherer of the space age. That's not a bad title. No, no. Hey, Matt, I'm excited. Do you know why? Why are you excited, Mr. Franklin? They've only found a dozen black holes at the centre of our bloody galaxy. No way have they. Well, I thought there was just one. I thought there was just one big. We one. talked about this a few weeks ago, mm. and we thought there was just one big one. One big and Sagittarius A star. I mean, what's going on? Well, this is from a paper that was. Um, I was going to say launched. Very apt. <laughs> that was released. Yeah. It's by a chap called Professor Charles J. Haley, who's a bit of a superstar from Columbia University. And I was actually thinking, uh-huh. I wonder if he's related to uh, the Haley. Of Haley's Comet fame. Oh, I don't know. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. So, anyway, this is what he said about the paper. It says, confirms a major theory. It is going to significantly advance gravitational wave research because knowing the number of black holes in the center of a typical galaxy can help in better predicting how many gravitational wave events we might see. Now, Matt, am I right in thinking that up until now, the theory was that there was. Uh, at least one in the centre of every galaxy, but they weren't exactly sure if that was the case. We reckon that there's a supermassive black hole at the centre of galaxies, but these are just yes. black holes. These are just like your regular black holes, not your supermassive ones. Your bog standard, your bog standard black stellar mass style, style black holes. Mm. The fundamental prediction is that there should be hundreds of thousands of these stellar mass black holes. Uh, in orbit around the supermassive black hole. It's what's known as a density cusp. Density cusp? Yeah, cusp, yeah. Wow. A localised increase in the number of black holes around the galactic centre. Uh, and it's yeah. a fundamental prediction of galactic stellar dynamics. So the best place to obviously look for them is our centre of our own galaxy. Uh, yes. The supermassive black hole, Sagittarius, a star. So 20,000 black holes are supposed to be in orbit there within a parsec of the galaxy center got it yeah something to do with dynamical friction oh i know all about that but they haven't been detected they've been trying to look for these black holes in a way that that hasn't borne any results but this team led by charles haley have gone yes. about it a different way they've looked for low mass x-ray binary systems yeah yeah so the actual paper is called A Density Cusp of Quiescent X-Ray Binaries. Now, quiescent means not active. So, you know, you could have a quiescent volcano. 
meaning it's not active. It's not active. Because I've got a knee injury, mm-hmm. my football career is quiescent. I think it. I think it probably is. Got it. Before they were looking for active black holes, but this is looking for the, like non-active black holes, and they have managed to find in the data from Chandra about a dozen black holes. Mm. And if you extrapolate the results, you get about three hundred to five hundred low mass binaries, about ten thousand isolated low mass black holes so it's it's approaching that theoretical value if you are to trust uh this experiment the only thing is that they've got to rule out other things like pulsars yeah but it looks as though they've made some headway in in uh, observing uh this very important theory that's amazing i mean so yeah it is that's quite an image isn't it matt so if we can start to get images of black holes as they think they might be able to soon mm-hmm might be a bit of a busier picture than we thought. And all within a parsec of the galactic centre. It's quite terrifying, forward slash sick, isn't it? <laughs> it is I'm rude. really trying to cut down on that, Matt, since we got that very early complaint from someone saying that we say too many youth youth words. Uh, we're, we're, but sometimes I just can't help it. I mean, heck, Matt, I am the youth. Right. <laughs> uh an, an astronomer noticed there was a, a distinct lack of phosphorus in the universe compared oh. to that on Earth, and that might be re- why why there's no aliens. That phosphorus is like really important for life, and yeah. uh, and it seems to be missing from the universe. Yeah, go check oh. that story out. That's quite that's quite exciting. That is exciting. But a lot of the news this week has been from a couple of launches. Uh, obviously, SpaceX are absolutely smashing it out of the park at the moment, Jamie. They really are. Falcon 9, again. Again. This year, they've been managing to fly once every 13 days. It's proper regular. Yeah, once a fortnight. This is verging on as quick as the uh, the English rail system, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I get a train once every 13 days yeah, to Yeah, this is, this is like Southern Rail. Don't even talk to me about the railways. A little bit of political humour for you, Matt. Mm-hmm, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, so what's been funny, though, is SpaceX have been abandoning... They haven't even bothered. And it's actually made watching the launches a little bit boring, if I'm honest. Um, they haven't even bothered trying to land them anymore. So the boosters are just flying off and smashing into the sea. Oh, why? Because they've got a massive inventory of Block 3 and Block 4 versions of Falcon 9. Right. And they've already done one trip, and that, that's their sort of second trip. And the uh, engineers have, have decided that really after two trips... Five. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, they're working on number five. So that's what they want to concentrate. And they've got to fly five quite a lot before they can send astronauts up, for example. Hmm. Uh, so they're So they're concentrating on that. And they're also using Block 3 and Block 4... Um, boosters so that they can collect loads of data for the high-speed kind of uh, attempts at landing at sea. So oh, they're yes. just sort of practicing with them as well. So they're not completely so it's wasted. Not complete waste. Okay. But yeah, so they're just so yeah. We're not we're not we're not seeing any uh, beautiful um, booster landings now. Talking of landings, mm-hmm. what's happened to one of your favourites, the Chaiyong Wang? The Chaiyong Wang. What's happened? Well, yeah, it, it's it's come down. It's 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 burnt up near Tahiti on Sunday, which I think was a bit of a damp squid, to be honest, because I don't think anyone's got any uh, footage of it because it's it's out at sea. <laughs> no one saw well, it. it. Well, it might have landed on a damp squid. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of our favourite places ever. 
Estec, our second home, has its 50th birthday this week. Oh, yeah. It was inaugurated on the 3rd of April 1968. Bon anniversaire. And there's so many things this week, it seems, from 1968, like the assassination of, of Martin Luther King. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, Apollo 6, the pogo flight, as they call it. Mm. And that... It's 50 years ago today, and it almost derailed the entire Apollo program. That, that, if that had really gone wrong, we might have been looking at a world where America collapsed and, and the Soviet Union triumphed. Pretty amazing, isn't it? But I yeah. mean, what could it have been like? Oh, that's why I'm getting really excited about Apollo 8, 50th anniversary later this year, because the more you hear about it, the more amazing that is, but... We'll be talking about that with uh, uh, Robert Kirsten later on, so stay tuned, listeners. Well, Matt, as we're talking about anniversaries, Mm -hmm. we should really talk about the 50th anniversary of the release of, I mean, one of our favourite films for sure. Oh, my gosh, Stanley Kubrick, an Arthur C. Clarke science fiction film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, my mum's favourite film ever. Well, and rightly so. It's certainly... It's got to be one of the greatest movies ever. Oh, it's just incredible. And of course, Arthur C. Clarke, very associated, like ourselves, with the British Interplanetary Society. So uh-huh. I, I kind of feel a real affiliation now. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. And yeah, yeah, 50 years. So many things they got right on that as well. Flat screen really displays, did. graphical interfaces. I mean, imagine it. Before, no one had even considered like a screen showing information graphically. And and that yeah. was what was in the film. So it must have just looked incredible. And the, I mean, just the music that went with it at certain points. Oh yeah, the music. I mean, amazing. really, that was the that was just that was just the moment for me where it was like, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I mean, what no. a marriage that is. Yeah, and we actually feature a lot of that music on our on our on our playlist. We did. Have you not checked out the playlist yet? Get Check yourselves onto Spotify. Check How can playlist. people find it, Matt? They can just go to the... In fact, I always have a link in the podcast notes. So it's always there. But it's, yeah, if you, if you just look up the Interplanetary Podcast on Spotify, you'll find our playlist. Well, I'm going to do it. Do it. It's absolutely amazing. I love it. And that if you playlist. need us to add anything, yeah. let us know. Let us know, because we, we still do keep getting the odd request in it's normally nah, one that's already that's on it now you will not find any more songs <laughs> we haven't got on there about space you there's, just can't do it there's normally one on there we we did have a complaint when we were discussing our favorite black hole songs a couple of weeks oh. ago and someone pointed out that neither of us had had uh, chosen rush cygnus x1 which oh. which which he's got a point i mean it is about a black hole and it is ace <laughs> yeah but we can't have too much prog no, on the show. no, we can't have too much prog. But we do have a you prog. Know. We do have a prog rock interview coming up. More on that in a couple of weeks. Oh. Yeah, we actually genuinely have. We, we do, don't we? Yeah, we genuinely do. Um, That's why we're backing off a bit now. Step away from the prog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, 2001. What an amazing film. If you haven't seen it, clearly you need to go see what it. What are you doing? Yeah. yeah. I love love this quote from Stanley Kubrick when he was interviewed uh, in 2001 about the aliens. Get this. So here we go. They may have 
progressed from biological species, which are fragile cells for the mind at best, into immortal machine entities, and then over innumerable eons they can emerge from the chrysalis of matter transformed into beings of pure energy and spirit. Their potentialities would be limitless, and their intelligence ungraspable by humans. That is brilliant. Yeah, he's describing the sentinel or the the black obelix thing. I just love from that. 2001. It's amazing. It's such a great film. God, I might have to go back and watch it now. Just a couple of launches this week, which are quite uh-huh. exciting on a, on a British front, Jamie. Mm-hmm. So last week, obviously, we had a load of Chinese action, a Russian action, and we actually had an Ind- Indian uh, GSLV Mark II that flew. And we, just, oh. we should talk about that one first, actually, because that had a Vicus engine, a, a sort of uh, a next generation Vicus engine, and that's based on the mm. Ariane 4 Viking engine. Of course. Yeah. It, it performed so well that they're going to use it on the Chandrian 2, which is planned for October the 2018. Nice. Uh, yeah, which is a very important Indian mission. But however, this satellite that's gone up, the first orbit manoeuvre was good. Second one, good. Third one, they've lost communication. So at the moment, the poor old Indians have lost communication with... Um, GSAT 6A, not good. Ooh. So the Russians put a military satellite up and then the Chinese put a couple of their equivalent of GPS satellites up. Then Falcon 9 went up with Mm. uh, some Iridian stuff. But here's the interesting one. So on April the 2nd, another Falcon 9 went up Mm. and it contained a satellite called Remove Debris, which is from our very own University of Surrey. Oh, it is? Yeah. So this Remove Debris uh, is obviously what it says on the tin. It's not exactly hard to understand what this thing does. And it's a little demonstrator to try and see what... um, And we have talked about this when we talked about Kessler syndrome and things like that. Um, But it's finally flown... And I hadn't actually spotted this, but it, yeah, it was on the it was on that Falcon Nine, and mm. the whole idea is that it's got two little CubeSats on board this little mothership, and it releases them. One it tries to track down and catch with a net, and the other one it it tries out its laser technology, its la- lidar laser ranging, mm. which I should imagine is very similar to the technology on on uh, autonomous cars, actually. Matt, when you say a net, that's that's not a girl called a net. That's no. an actual net to catch. Okay, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is literally a net that they fire. Right, and uh, and then they've got one uh, another demonstration where they where they they extend a boom arm that's got a target on it, and then they fire a harpoon at it and see how objects behave in microgravity and see you know, what the effects are because no one really see, knows. Matt, we're in the wrong job. We need to be doing experiments like this oh, during I can't the day. Imagine how cool that is. See, I Imagine just, that. Where I work, I could literally walk up the hill and talk to these guys, and I'm not quite sure why the hell I haven't. <laughs> why so haven't you? Lit- I, I, I drive past the, their little people carrier every now and then and like go, can what we, am I can doing? We go, yeah, we need- can we go down and do a live podcast? Yeah, we should, we should do, definitely. We should. So if any of, you, any of you guys who work at Surrey Satellites, let me know. Invite me up. Invite me up. Invite me up, please. I'm only round and the corner. I'm, only, I'm in Guildford on every single day of the week so let me know please please 
And uh, its fourth demonstration will be to uh, have this enormous sail that will drag the mothership back down to Earth. So they'll be testing like a kind of large membrane sail. Mothership. Mm. It's a good word, isn't it? It is cool. A mothership that deploys these little CubeSats. It's very cute. It's cost uh, the European Commission 13 million quid or 15 million euros. Remember when 13 million quid would be more like 20 million euros? I was just going to say, that doesn't mean anything to us anymore. It's just like, what? That? They're, all, they're almost that one all? for one. It's like a nightmare. Ridiculous. Thanks, Brexit. Thanks, Farage. Yeah, cheers. Cheers, Boris. You... <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even want Brexit. It was just his bid to become Prime Minister. God. So this will be deployed by NanoRacks on the International Space Station, as is another little satellite yeah. that's gone up. Go so the Atmosphere space interactions monitor and remember that really cool picture i showed you of gamma rays coming out of lightning i do remember it's gonna that's it's gone up to analyze those oh so yes it's gonna be flying around for two years asim it's called and it's gonna be yeah it's gonna be detecting those we get some nice photos well, I hope so. I really hope so. Uh, I mean, you'd thought you'd think they'd stick a camera up, wouldn't you? Yeah. Just in I case. wonder if it is cameras or is just just pure data collection. Uh, it's a guy called Doctor Martin Fulakrug from the University of Bath. Wow. Uh, and this is apparently fifth. This is like fifteen years of research, and this is like the pinnacle of it. And Doctor Graham Turnick, the chief executive of the UK Space Agency, said. This experiment will give scientists all over the world the opportunity to study the effects of powerful lightning storms from the unique vantage point of the International Space Station. It's another exciting moment for the international space collaboration and commercial (laughs) space flight, which the UK Space Agency supports through the government's industrial strategy. Do you think we can ever have him on the show now? Or do you think we've blown it? Oh, dear. He doesn't sound like that. I'm sure he sounds... He's, he sounds no, that's it. We've ruined, like a we've ruined normal that. human being. But where's the fun in that? I'll stand by you. So, earlier on this week, Jamie, I spoke to Robert Curson, and he has written an amazing book called Rocket Men. And that is about Apollo 8. Mm. And I've been reading it because I'm, I was lucky enough to be sent a an advanced copy of it so i've I've been reading it for a a few weeks now and it comes out on sale today in fact you should definitely go check it out but i've got an interview with him right now if you would like to hear it jamie would you please i'm open all ears oh i love this guy as well he was very very polite he's also he lived in england for a while as well at the university of warwick good lad good uni that he got sent to coventry where he studied philosophy You'd need to study philosophy in Coventry. Absolutely. Well, uh, nice one, Robert. Thanks for that. That's great. Yeah, so he's a, he really is an, an amazing author as well. He's, he's written several New York Times best-selling books. So, you know, this nice. is, he's, a, he's, he's a very well-respected author with a massive passion for space. And this is an incredible book, that mind-blowing how brave the astronauts that flew Apollo 8 are. So do you want to hear... I'd love to hear it. I caught I. I'm joined by Robert Curson, whose book Rocket Men is out 
on Random House on the 3rd of April. Hello, Robert. Hello, great to be with you. Before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, yeah, the, the launch of this book? Well, I grew up and currently live in Chicago. Um, I have been interested in space and space exploration since I was a little kid. And, you know, like so many people just were overwhelmed with the idea that mankind could launch itself from Earth and um, explore the cosmos. And one of the great things that uh, I've experienced in life is that that thrill that I remember from childhood in contemplating space exploration has not faded. You know, almost everything else that excited me as a kid, you know, I got used to the idea of, but I still can't get used to the idea that we can um, launch from the Earth and go into space and reach the moon or uh, beyond. So that's uh, something that's thrilled me forever. Um, by trade, I was a lawyer at one time, um, but couldn't stand that. Uh, I, f- I found it uh, incredibly stultifying and um, soul crushing. And so I got out of the practice of law about 20 years ago and became a writer. And really, my dream in the back of my mind for so many years, going way back to boyhood, was to write about space. And so that's what I've done now. This is my fourth book, Rocket Men, and it's about Apollo 8, mankind's first journey away from Earth and first arrival at the moon. I've been really, really lucky enough to have an um, advanced copy of this book, and I've been working my way through. I'm, I, I confess, I'm much more of an audible kind of person, uh, but I notice it's actually out on Audible, so I shall be buying it uh, in a couple of days' time when it's out. So I'm really looking forward to it. But I'm reading it at the moment. It's, it's a really, really, really uh, great book about Apollo 8. And and it it just gives this sense of what an audacious thing it was. Was was that the story that you wanted to tell? The kind of daring and bravery of the Apollo eight astronauts. Absolutely, this was, in my opinion, the most daring and audacious mission uh, that NASA ever ran. Um, it was uh, rushed really to the launch pad in four months' time. Normally, it took twelve to eighteen months for NASA to prepare and train for a space mission. This was done in four months. And uh, it was done uh, in such a hurried fashion for a couple reasons. One uh, is that the lunar module um, was stalled. There was a problem with the lunar module in development and building uh, that threatened to stop or uh, slow down the Apollo program greatly. And so in order to preserve President Kennedy's promise to the nation uh, in 1961 that by the end of the decade, uh, America would land men on the moon and return them safely – Uh, And also, and maybe even more importantly, to beat the Soviets in sending the first men to the moon, NASA decided to uh, push Apollo 8 uh, to the launch pad in late December of 1968. They would send them to the moon without a lunar module, meaning the the mission would just orbit the moon from an altitude of uh, 69 miles. Uh, They wouldn't land, but it would succeed in advancing the Apollo program and also uh, beating the Soviets uh, to send the first men to the moon. However, to do that in four months' time required um, enormous risk and and danger and daring. And uh, a couple, I can just um, lay out a couple of the primary risks for you right away. One was that uh, the astronauts would be flying the first manned flight of the mighty Saturn V rocket, the only rocket powerful enough to deliver men to the moon. The problem was the Saturn V had only been tested 
twice before, both times unmanned, and in its second test had failed catastrophically. So they were going to make the third flight of the Saturn V, not just a lunar flight, but a manned lunar flight with three astronauts aboard who had family and wives and loved ones back home. That was a huge risk. The other risk um, was that they were going to go without this lunar module. Now, that's no big deal considering they weren't going to land on the moon. But given the fact that the lunar module could also serve as a backup engine, a lifeboat of sorts, it was a massive risk to take because if anything went wrong with Apollo 8's single primary engine at the moon, if it malfunctioned, if it failed, there was every chance that the astronauts could crash into the lunar surface or be stranded in lunar orbit or fly off into eternal solar orbit. So the single SPS engine they were going to rely on had to function beautifully or they were in huge trouble, to say the least. And then there was a host of of other risks that they were undertaking um, that made this, again, as I think and as many astronauts will tell you, the single most daring and uh, risky mission NASA ever undertook. Well, yeah. I, I mean, every time I read about Apollo 8, I get... It, it it really does make me feel a little bit queasy, the <laughs> going round the far side of the moon relying on one engine. Um, so these really, really brave astronauts, Borman, Lovell and Anders, uh, uh, the book seems to be based around your meetings and interviews with those astronauts. So what was it like meeting these great and brave astronauts? It was uh, a true lifetime highlight for me to meet all three of them. And one of the, you know, one of the things you fear as a writer is meeting people you've admired because it's easy enough to be let down. But I have to tell you that each of these three men, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, was uh, as kind and as gentlemanly and as good a guy as you'd ever hope to meet in life. They weren't just good guys for astronauts. They were just the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet and as down to earth, if you pardon the pun, <laughs> as you could as you could ever hope for. And so it made interviewing them not just easy, but a real pleasure. And uh, their recall of the events and of the mission were astonishing. When I uh, first met with them, um, Frank and Jim were 87 or 88 years old, and Bill was about 82 or 83 years old. And it was as if you were talking to them the week after Apollo 8 returned to Earth. Uh, their ability to describe things, to recall detail, and to explain for the layman, which I am, what was going on was just astonishing. It was a very, very lucky break for me. And I considered a real-life highlight to have spent a lot of time with them, both in person and on the phone. Uh, I even got to fly with um, Frank Borman and with Bill Anders uh, in their small um, planes, by the time I uh, found the story, Jim Lovell had stopped flying. But just having those flights with those men was something I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Yeah, that that I, I am extremely jealous at this point, and but very very heartwarmed that uh, that they turn out to be uh, such lovely lovely people. I mean, that's that's great, isn't it? Uh, were, were there any other people that you interviewed, and did you have any favourites amongst the the cast of many? Well, one of my favorite interviews I did was with Chris Kraft, who is really a legend in NASA history. He was uh, responsible for the concept of mission control. And any astronaut you talk to or any NASA manager you talk to will um, describe Chris Kraft as essential uh, to the American space program. Um, he was 91 when I first interviewed him. And he gave me two days, two full days at his home in Houston. And he also uh, had perfect uh, recall for these events and just 
was able to frame for me how important Apollo 8 was, that um, this was the f- a first time he, he explained it to me in terms of firsts. There were so many firsts involved in Apollo 8 and that nobody knew that men could make this mission. You know, man had never ventured to the moon before. And this was the first time. And he uh, stressed to me that NASA, when they came up with this plan, just in August of 1968, that's when they first really settled on this plan, really did not know how to go to the moon. And to hear a legend like Chris Kraft say, you know, we really didn't know how to do it completely at that point. And we had to learn along with the astronauts in four months was just startling and so dramatic. And like the astronauts, he was just as good a guy as you could meet and just made me uh, feel like – you had to root for these guys with everything you had because they did something uh, really, truly once in a lifetime with Apollo 8. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's brilliant when you recall some of the conversations and, and you know, it's it's people like Von Braun and James Webb and people like that are all involved in the conversations. It just it just seems absolutely mind blowing that that, that that those conversations were going on with with essentially who are who are legends now. Um but the, one of the reasons why I'm talking to you right now is because we've, of course, got Apollo 6, which was one of those uh, Saturn V test flights, uh, and the 50th anniversary is now only days away. How did how did that go if we were to transport ourselves back 50 years? Well, Chris Kraft de- described the uh, flight of Apollo 6 as a disaster, as a catastrophe. <laughs> so much went wrong Uh, during the flight. Now, there were things that went right on the flight. I shouldn't um, describe it as a complete and utter failure, but so much failed that uh, it seemed virtually impossible um, to suggest that the next flight of a Saturn V would carry men aboard, never mind go to the moon. So um, it was a a terrible uh, result for NASA. And it happened on April 4th. So virtually nobody in America uh, was aware of it because on that very same day, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And so the newspapers here were full of that and um, didn't pay much attention to the to the um, troubled flight of Apollo 6. Um, the American space program had hope for the Saturn V, not just because they had some time and they had Werner von Braun at the helm to correct these problems, but also because um, the first test flight of the Saturn V had gone so beautifully. And if anybody um, wants to experience something really dramatic, you should go on YouTube and listen to Walter Cronkite. He was the the most trusted man in America and the, the anchor man of CBS News. There's video on YouTube of Walter Cronkite describing the first flight of the Saturn V. Um, and it's just stunning to hear him react to the kind of power that had never um, been produced by mankind before that day. So, uh, but yes, the Apollo 6 was a big problem. Um, The 50th anniversary is coming up and just another of the many astonishing things to look at uh, when you realize that NASA pushed forward and sent these guys to the moon on the third flight of the Saturn V just in December of 1968. Yeah, I mean, that that is incredible. So um, were NASA feeling quite optimistic before Apollo 6 or, or, or was there already sort of trouble in the waters, as it were? Well, I think they felt confident about the rocket uh, as they were coming up to the test of Apollo 6. But you have to remember that um, there was still a lot of uh, concern at NASA because of um, the tragedy uh, of Apollo 1. You recall that in January of 1967, three American astronauts died on the launch pad during a test um, for 
Apollo 1, which was to occur a few weeks later. And so that tragedy uh, that cost three American lives um, was a great threat to NASA. Congress investigated, and there was every chance that they were going to step in and slow down the Apollo program, or maybe even halt it, because Mm. that was just a a terrible tragedy. So that's in the minds of everybody as they're leading up to manned flight on Apollo. And when you see Apollo 6 have these problems in April of 1968, it couldn't help but remind a lot of people about what had happened on the launch pad uh, for the Apollo 1 astronauts. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just incredible. So if 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 we were the interplanetary podcast and we were sent back 50 years and, and, and podcasting was a thing, which it isn't, of course, but 50 years ago, what after Apollo 6, what, what would the next couple of months say for April, May and June? What's, what's the kind of things that we would have been talking about? Was Apollo still kind of like a big news story at all times? It's huge. It's the biggest news story there is. Um, in, in America, 1968 is one of the most terrible years in our history. So um, a lot of the, t- the discussion here is about uh, the divide in the country. There are assassinations, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy. There's violence in the streets, including in my hometown, Chicago, during the Democratic National Convention, and so much uh, rancor and division. Um, but in terms of people who are interested in space and, uh, and what's going on at NASA, Uh, The real focus is on the space race because we are locked in an existential battle with the Soviet Union to see who wins the space race. And getting the first men to the moon and landing the first men to the moon are two of the most important um, pieces and really the final pieces in the space race. And there are all kinds of military implications to who wins the space race. So that is on the minds of anyone who is interested in space. And also what you're looking at 50 years ago today is the closing in of Kennedy's deadline. He made this incredibly, what sounded like a crazy promise in 1961 that America's going to land men on the moon and return them safely by the end of the decade. When he made that promise, the people at NASA had no idea how they were going to land men mm. on the moon, none, and were shocked by what the president had announced that day. But here um, with you know a year and a half to go, uh, till the president's deadline expires, the focus is really on is he is NASA going to make this and keep this president's insane promise to the country and to the world? So you're watching every day the progress and how fast can we get there? And really, are we going to beat the Soviets? Because for a long time, the Soviets were beating the pants off the United States. Um, every first they seemed to own and every space spectacular they seemed to own. Now, that had changed with a Gemini program, but it was neck and neck um, to see who could get the first men to the moon when you're looking 50 years ago today. Yeah. Um, so as the Interplanetary Podcast, would we have been uh, commenting on what the Russians were up to? Because uh, there seemed to be an awful lot happening in 1968 in terms of robotic craft going to the moon and other places. Yeah, you're going to be commenting on it. And uh, British observatory observatories are tracking um, their Zahn spacecraft as they go around the moon and practice the very final stages before they're going to send a manned flight. So there are uh, almost daily updates uh, about what the Soviets are doing and the Soviets' advancements and American advancements. And it really is a neck and neck race. On the cover of Time magazine, um, towards the end of 1968, you see uh, astronaut and a cosmonaut in a sprint in space toward the moon, and they are, you know, just 
even with each other in the in the final moments. It really did come down to the last hours. So this was one of the most dramatic races uh, you could ever watch. And from our perspective and your perspective, it really does seem like good versus evil. So it's it's thrilling to to uh, watch it unfold and to watch it in its final moments. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really I'm really looking forward now. Really, uh, after this after this Apollo six fiftieth anniversary, we really have got the run into Apollo eight. Uh, and looking back at those kind of historical uh, landmark moments, I mean, do you think that there's something to be said that the Americans kind of open, open society and openness when they were talking about what was happening at Apollo? Presumably, they were very open with with what was going on and and how they were proceeding. Uh, in in stark contrast, I would imagine to the the communists. Um, uh, is that the, is, is have I have I got that right? Uh, I've got that bit of history right. Was, was were America really really open and, and Russia very closed, and therefore it was quite hard to judge whether it was neck and neck or not. Yes, in, in a, you're absolutely correct. Every success we had and every failure we had was right out there for the entire world to see. Um, everything was broadcast live. Uh, you couldn't hide anything. And that's one of the beauties of this country, that the good and the bad are out there for all to see. Um, the Soviets, of course, uh, let you know only about the good. But they became so confident uh, in 1968 as the race to get the first men to the moon was um, approaching its final hours that they started to really announce even in advance some of the things they were doing and let people know just how uh, wonderfully they were doing. So you started to hear announcements as spacecraft were in mid-flight rather than after the, the mission had been completed. And that only served to make uh, people rooting for NASA and the United States even more nervous that the Soviets were going to win this space race. Yeah, on, on a personal level, it, it's uh, one thing I did pick up on the book that I did, hadn't really kind of clocked before was uh, your description of Frank Borman and how he he was really only in it because of this uh, battle between good, you know, what was perceived as between good and evil at the time. Um, that was that's really really interesting. Was that was that something that he he kind of told you in during the interviews? Yes, and he was very upfront and straightforward about it. Uh, you know, some people like to romanticize uh, the Apollo mission and saying this was done for the sake of science and picking up moon rocks and inventing Velcro and Tang. Uh, space drink. But um, the astronauts, many of them, and especially Frank, will just tell you that's not what it was about at all. It was about beating the Soviets. And as far as Frank was concerned, um, that was what it was all about. And when they made the uh, journey in Apollo 8 and, and returned and became the first men ever to reach the moon, to, to Frank Borman, he had done his job. And that's what he was aiming for all this time. Uh, he believed in the goodness of America, and he believed in the, uh, the um, importance of defeating the Soviets on really what had become the most important battlefield in history, uh, outer space. And so that's what it was to him, and that's what it was about to Bill Anders and to so many of the other astronauts. They uh, understood they were military men. You, you have to remember that. These mm. guys were test pilots and fighter pilots, all drawn from the military ranks, or almost all drawn from the military ranks. And uh, they saw it as a Cold War battle. Yeah, I mean, in, and in some ways, of course, Apollo 8, uh, Frank Borman and Lovell and Anders, the, their bravery, I suppose, really was one of the biggest, mass, most massive nails in uh, in the Soviet coffin, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, wasn't it? 
It was. It really was a defeat, Apollo 8, of the Soviets in the space race. Um, it was a devastating blow. And you can read accounts now of what the Soviets were saying as Apollo 8 launched. In fact, as Apollo 8 launched, many of them didn't even believe it. They didn't believe it had actually happened because it was so daring and so bold and so fast. Um, some of them couldn't process it. But when it became clear that it had, in fact, happened and that Apollo 8 was on its way to the moon, the tributes from the Soviets and the heartbreak of the cosmonauts is so poignant. You can read about it, and I quote some of it in the book, and it's they just know they've been beaten even before Apollo 8 reaches the moon. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a huge event, isn't, isn't it? Do you, uh, do you take much of an interest in modern spaceflight? And uh, with, all, with all the kind of, and I'm, I'm particularly thinking of Kennedy's 10-year uh, <laughs> deadline, is there lessons that we can take from this era of Apollo that you think can, can uh, either really help us now or you actually see resurfacing now? Well, I have mixed feelings about that. It's a great question. Um, part, you know, I watched the launch of Falcon Heavy and saw the retro rockets land themselves back on Earth. And it just seemed to be out of a science fiction movie. The technology was so wonderful and so thrilling. And I had the feeling, as I used to have when I was a little kid, watching the Apollo flights in grade school on the tiny black and white TVs, you know, when they would stop class and we'd all sit there and watch. So on, in that respect, the idea of private space travel and the technology and the push of these um, very curious, uh, rich people to get to space is absolutely thrilling. On the other hand, uh, it seems to me that Apollo was only possible due to this incredible um, threat we felt from the Soviet Union, an existential threat. And it seems that only something that great and that grave might have the power to push a country to do something as unbelievable, really as impossible as landing men on the moon or going even beyond. And without that kind of... Uh, emergency, so to speak. I don't know how much we're capable of that NASA was capable of 50 years ago today. It might, I hope it doesn't, but it might take another uh, existential crisis uh, to push mankind to do something that great again. I'm just not sure. Thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast, uh, Robert. It's, it's been absolutely my pleasure, and I really can't wait to finish this book. Thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege. I love the show, and uh, I'm grateful to have been a guest. No, thank you very much. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. What do you think of that interview then, Jamie? Well, it's just brilliant, isn't it? I mean, wow. He's a total dude. Total dude. I think he should become a regular feature. He did agree to come back on nearer uh, the Apollo 8 anniversary. Hey, Matt, let me ask you something. Have you got a space fact for me? The Bank of America Merrill Lynch analysts predict a space market that is worth $339 billion today to grow to $2.7 trillion by 2045. Sweet relief, that's a lot of money. So now is the time to invest in space. Get your stocks out of your pants <laughs> and into the galaxy. Excellent. That's my advice. <laughs> Have you been investing in pants? Forget Bitcoin. Uh, so, thank you, Space Cats. 
Um, it's been another lovely week. Um, thank you once again for all your comments uh, on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. We love you. Um, Matt. I've got to do a shout out. So this this Robert Kirsten interview came via a Brent Underwood uh, who organised it all. So I've got to thank him. Thank you very much, Cheers, Brent. Brent. You the man. So yeah, if you, you rock. We literally, if you've got anyone out there that you really want to interview, just let us know, and we will go ahead and interview them. We'll go and get them. We'll go get them, and they'll never they'll never decline or, us. If you yourself want to be now. if if you yourself want to be interviewed, then forget about it. We don't want to talk to egomaniacs. No, right? He's kidding. <laughs> Tell us why, and. Uh, and what you've got to say, and um, let's get you on. Love to talk about space with anyone in space. Not in space, Matt, but you know who I, space. you know who I want to big up? Mm-hmm. I want to big up our patrons. Oh, big time. The big time because patrons. they make this happen. Yeah. If you want to be part of the exclusive club, get yourself onto... Interplanetary.org.uk That's the one. Get yourself on there. Everything's on there. All the links, and you'll be able to see how you too can become part of the exclusive Patreon club. What you too? Um, you too have joined. Of course, they have. Oh, ex- excellent! Bono is absolutely loving. I tell you what, Bono has also uh, gone onto iTunes, Matt, giving us a five star review, mm-hmm. and he's just been honest. He's just been waxing lyrical about how much he loves it. <sighs> He's His words, a... not mine. So if you want to be a patron like these guys, Matt Gilliland. Matt. Legend, Bob Hodges. Bob. Legend, Richard Swain. Richard. Legend, Karel Sim. Karel. Legend, Erin Edwards. Erin. No. Legend. And of course, the mighty Julio Abrea. Legend. So if you want to be like them guys, legends, then you know where we are. It's great. Thank you so much for helping. And it means that we can continue to just uh, ramble. Ramble. At you. Ramble. Is there anyone listening? Hello, everyone. Hello in podcast world. Anyway, it's time to say bye bye. Let's leave these guys right. to get on with their life. We'll see you next week. Bye bye, ladies. Bye bye, men. Bye bye, podcasts. Bye now. Wherever you are. Bye. Bye. Bye.